Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion, and this is Bilingual in America. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser. Sometimes as a podcast host, you get to speak with a giant in the field and you just can't get all of the conversation to fit into just one episode. So what are you to do? Well, you decide to split the interview into two episodes. Yarina and I had a chance to speak at length with the well-known expert with broad and strong roots in the field of bilingual education, a true pionera, Dr. Ofelia Garcia. For those of you who are unfamiliar with her work within the world of education, you should know that she began as a teacher in the New York City public schools before bilingual education even existed as an instructional model. She is Professor Emerita in the PhD programs of Urban Education and Latin American, Iberian, and Latino Cultures at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has been Professor of Bilingual Education at Columbia University's Teachers College and Dean of School of Education at the Brooklyn campus of Long Island University. She has authored and co-authored numerous books with other gifted researchers that she talks about during today's episode. When Yarina and I reached out to her about joining us on the podcast, she responded by saying, sure, anything for teachers and our kids who are holding our society up during these hard times. Without any further ado, let's listen in to part one of our powerful conversation with Dr. Ofelia Garcia. We are in the wonderful presence of Dr. Ofelia Garcia and she was joining us today to discuss some of the work that she has done. We only have a short time together, but we hope to uncover some of the brilliance that she has come across in all of her work. As we always begin our show, we ask that our guests share a little bit about their bilingual journey and how you came to be the amazing person that you are. Thank you, Suzanne and Yadina, for this invitation and for having me here. I don't think that there's anything special about my journey. My journey has been the same as that of many, many people, uh, many, many immigrants who have come to New York City. I left Cuba at the age of 11 with my parents, and we came straight to New York City. So unlike many other Cuban Americans, I only had a New York City experience, never a Miami experience. I lived always in a a Spanish-speaking home. I was the oldest of four. I had a a sister, a brother that was two, and my mother became pregnant. uh, And I have one brother born in the United States. So it means that like all bilingual families, uh, we were almost two generations of siblings. I was old enough. And so our 
language practices at home were quite bilingual with my brothers speaking more English and maybe my sister and I speaking more Spanish and that that was just the way it was. And my parents speaking Spanish, but gradually also speaking English to the boys. So this is uh, normal in bilingual families where parents speak Spanish and the children speak English. This is very, very common. So we, we always lived in a bilingual home and a bilingual neighborhood uh, where there was a lot of Spanish spoken. Um, and this was just natural for us. This is the way it was. I never saw it as strange or different or whatever. I became a teacher, a bilingual teacher, almost, I always say, before there was bilingual education. Uh, my first teaching experience what it was in what was then called Health uh, Kitchen, which, of course, today is Clinton, Chelsea, and gentrified. But yeah. back then, it was a basically Puerto Rican community. And I was giving a classroom where, I think without exception, all my children were Puerto Rican. Many were not speakers of English. And I taught the first week, and I thought, this doesn't make sense. And I was fortunate enough that this was a, a school, an alternative school, you know, coming out of the 60s. It was the, the early 70s. So we had a a teacher who was the uh, coordinator. We didn't have a principal. And uh, I went up to him and I said, you know, what I'm doing doesn't make any sense. I'm teaching a language that the children don't understand. And we have a resource in common, you know, we have, we have Spanish in common. And why am I doing it all in English? And he said, well, because that's what you're supposed to do. And I said, well, I can't do this any longer because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me. It doesn't make sense for the kids. They're not learning. So I'm just going to do it bilingually. And he said, well, what does that look like? And I said, I have no idea, but I'm going to try. And again, to me, it was not a strange thing because it, this was the way that I had always spoken at home. That was This is the way that, that my family practice language and therefore what was very uh, different for them was not unusual for me at all. So that's, you know, that's how I became a bilingual teacher. I became a bilingual teacher, not because I had read anything, but because I knew one thing and I knew that I had been involved in progressive movements. I knew that there was one philosophy of, of progressive education that I believed in deeply and that I still believe in deeply today, which is you have to build on the strength of children. And the mm -hmm. strength of my children was the fact that they also had another language. And that's what I built on. And eventually I uh, went for a doctorate. And um, back then there were no doctorates in bilingual education. So I studied whatever I could. I studied Spanish, literature, I studied semiotics, but I was always attracted to bilingual authors to begin with. So my work was always with uh, bilingual authors. And at the same time, I started studying with Joshua Fishman, who was a, a sociolinguist at Yeshiva University. And Fishman had, uh, had really thought about bilingualism in ways that didn't make any sense to me, but it made sense to the scholarship. So we read and read together and studied together. And he became my mentor and my good colleague throughout his life. But yet I knew that his bilingual experience was different from my bilingual experience. 
I don't know if I'm talking too long or if I'm saying too much. Uh, so you stop me because I can talk and talk and never stop. <laughs> but then I became, then I was um, hired at, teach, at City College in their wonderful school of education then, back then. I mean, it, there was no other place like City College in the 80s. City College was a, a vibrant place, a committed place, a place that was very much within the Harlem community, was part of the community. A lot of my, oh, most of my students, most of my bilingual teachers were uh, Dominicans from Washington Heights, some, some Puerto Ricans, but many, many Dominicans at that point, at that time. And we had a wonderful time and I learned as much from the students as they learned from me. And I started building from there, right? Uh, always thinking that our bilingualism was very different from the bilingualism that I read about in the books, right? All the bilingual scholars then, all the bilingual sociolinguists then were addressing bilingualism, but they were addressing bilingualism differently from what I was experiencing with bilingualism. So let's see. So just to end this at some point, because you know I'm old, and therefore because I'm old, I have I have lots to say about my life, uh, and I could go on forever and ever. But so I was at City College for a long time, having a wonderful experience. I met my husband there, I had my children while I was there. At some point, things started changing. Uh, you know, the world started changing neoliberalism got to us and it got to the institutions also. So um, City College started responding to the pressures from New York State, from the New York State Education Department that said that all institutions had to have an 80% pass rate on the New York State teacher certification exam. We did not have that, but we had a lot of, of incredible teachers in our, uh, in our program and in the schools who really knew the community and really understood the community and who could teach the community and where the school was not different from the community. There was, there was just a different ethos there. But some of them had sometimes issues with um, the writing portion of the exam. Some of my colleagues decided that the best way to get a good pass rate is, was to give the exam when teachers entered rather than when teachers left. And that way they had a good sense of whether the teachers were going to be able to really do well in the exam or to have a cutoff score in the exam. What happened then was that the bilingual, many of the bilingual teachers did not qualify for entrance into the School of Education. And I've always believed that the reason why we all have jobs is because we have to teach. If people came in knowing already, there was no reason for any of us to, to teach. And what I had seen was that, you know, sometimes students entered even the master's program. Some, some professionals, Dominican professionals, for example, that were coming in at that time, who were engineers, who were scientists, and who were really intellectually very, very competent people, but their English was still developing. And over the two or three years that they worked through their master's degree with a lot of our help, they were able to do well. So those people all of a sudden couldn't enter. So anyway, make a long story short, I, I became very disillusioned with what was going on. At the same time, there was another institution that, that thought that they were having the same problem. That was the Brooklyn campus of Long Island University also 
with a lot of minority teacher candidates and they called me in to find out, you know, whether I had any thoughts. And I had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> story short, I uh, was recruited to become dean of that school of education. Um, I was dean uh, there for six years. We did a great job. We, we really turned the school around. But I was restless because I, I don't like to be an administrator. I, real, I realized that very quickly. I like to create. I like to put things together. And once the curriculum was done and once we started doing it and once the faculty was really together, I was, you know, I, I did not want to just keep it going. I wanted, you know, to create something new. Teachers College at that point recruited me at Columbia, and I, I went there, uh, and I was, again, very happy there for six years. But CUNY came to call one more time, and I thought very seriously about the fact that you have to know how to open to start your career, but also to end your career. And I knew I had about 10 more years of teaching, and then I wanted to retire, and I thought I wanted to do that in a public university. So um, I left Columbia and went to the Graduate Center of City University. And the rest is history where I was extremely happy. And everybody said, oh, you're going to miss your the students at Teachers College. I did miss them. Uh, they were wonderful students, but I've had a terrific run at the Graduate Center. And I'm very, very proud of the students that, that I taught there. That's exceptional. I mean, um, just listening to you first, right? You are a gatekeeper. Oh. You are a pioneer and your roots within everything bilingual, multilingual uh, in terms of education are, are broad and strong and, and still growing. So thank you for, for sharing a quick visit of, of your timeline and, and the stops along the way. Absolutely. And some of the pieces that I heard you share so beautifully was you had a very beautiful Beautiful and strong sense of community. Mm -hmm. You also had this thread of build upon strength, like everywhere you went, like it took you a week to realize in your first teaching assignment, <laughs> this is not going to work, right? <laughs> and, and because you weren't building on the student's strengths and your own strengths. I think that that's an important piece that we forget as teachers, as practitioners, that we have that wisdom and we can make those choices of how do I maximize the strength that's within this community? So that's a really yeah. beautiful way to look at the craft of teaching because it's right. there's no one way to teach, right? We really, right. it really right. depends on who's in front of us and how right. we contribute and they contribute. Yeah, Janina, I couldn't agree uh, more with you. Kate Minkin and I have a book that we call I think it's titled something like Teachers as Policymakers, because we're always saying, oh, well, the policy doesn't let us do this. The curriculum doesn't let us do this. But, uh, you know, good teachers always negotiate the policy. And, you know, here's, again, something that I learned uh, at, at City College through a, a colleague of mine who has since passed, Lillian Weber, who always used to say, you have to find the crack. She always used to say, this system is full of cracks. And the important thing when you teach 
is you find the crack and then you go through it, right? But what leads you is not the policy that they impose or the curriculum that is imposed. What leads you is your connection to the strength of the children. And I think that's, that's all, that's, that has always been very important for me. Yeah, that's so clever. Find the crack, right? What do we know about cracks? They widen, <laughs> they can right? widen, right? right and right. if you fill the crack, then you solidify it and you repair what was cracking. So uh-huh. that's, I love that. <laughs> yeah, interesting image. Yeah, yeah. I always thought of just escaping through the crack, but you're you're going beyond escaping. You're uh, going be beyond it. You're going uh, to build it through the crack. So that's amazing. Yeah, Dr. Garcia, if you could share with us, Ophelia, please. Oh, okay, Ophelia, such a beautiful name. If you could share with us why the sociology of language is key when thinking about being bilingual in America. You know, as I said, Joshua Fishman, who was really the, the father of sociology of language, he started all of this. He started the field of sociology of language. And some people think about it as sociolinguistics, but he always used to think, well, what's important is the social aspects of language. And I think that's a very big difference because sometimes the sociolinguists talk about language and forget the social part. He always made sure that, that the social part was included. And I think his contribution was very, very important because it focused on bilingual people and bilingual learners and bilingual communities. And prior to his work, there had been very, very little uh, attention to it. There had been attention only to monolingualism. And then when bilingual scholars started started coming to the fore, they started thinking of comparing the bilinguals to monolinguals. So it it was always uh, finding the deficiencies in the language. And that's the way that it was. It was how to describe languages in contact. And... Joshua Fishman never believed that uh, bilinguals had to be compared to monolinguals. He sort of studied bilinguals within their own ecology, within their own community, without having to uh, compare them to monolinguals. And I think that's important. He also looked historically at the history of bilingualism in the United States. And of course, the history of bilingualism in the United States is long. It's been one that if you think about Spanish, Spanish has been in this territory as long as English and German and all the other languages that have inhabited the, the people who have inhabited this territory. The idea is that bilingualism is not new, that bilingualism has always existed in the United States. The One of the most important scholars, early scholars of bilingualism in the United States was Einar Haugen, who studied Norwegian in the United States. Uh, And there were um, very important Norwegian communities in the Midwest that he studied. And again, he studied them in their context, in their communities, not in comparison to what they were doing linguistically with Norwegians in Norway. So the idea that that it was uh, okay to be Norwegian in the United States and to speak Norwegian in the United States, not like Norwegians uh, did in Norway, but as Americans. 
So I think the, these are important ideas that are still very important for us today to remember that bilingual people have always inhabited these territories and that the issue has been that sometimes we have used bilingual bilingualism as a way to exclude, to think of people as being inferior, to stigmatize practices, and in so doing, maybe even eroding the language practices in the minority community because um, they were always seen as deficient and stigmatized. I think sociology of language and Joshua Fishman's work in particular uh, were very important historically, especially at the time in which it was done. You know, I always say everything I learned, I learned in Fishman 101, and it's true. He taught me everything I know. But I also knew from the very beginning, from when I was a young student, I kept saying, what he's telling me about bilingualism is not, it's his bilingualism. He was a, a secular Yiddish speaker, and he was very committed to Yiddish, uh, the maintenance of Yiddish after the Holocaust, of course, and as a secular way of speaking, not not because he was uh, not as a Hasidic do today. So, but I always thought, okay, his ideas of bilingualism are do not quite match my my community. So I used his lessons to discover my own lessons. And my own lessons were different because our experiences as Latinos in the United States are different from other groups. Uh, because historically, we have been, unlike uh, other immigrants, Latinos have been a colonized group, right? Uh, the largest group, the Mexican-Americans, the Chicanos, of course, were colonized. Um, you know, Mexican-American War did them in. And then the other big group in the Northeast, the Puerto Ricans, are also a colony. And somehow everybody gets put together in this group, right? So the experiences are different. Um, the power dimensions are different. The racialization of the groups are different. And so I think what's important is to learn the lessons that we have been taught through sociology of language and then expand them, go beyond them to fit again the community that is in the present, which is a very different one. It's okay. such a powerful uh, approach to look at it, right? If we always did that, right, to take the lesson and then expand it in our own realm and then what we see in the communities that we touch, that's really a powerful way to really grow as a people and a community. Mm -hmm. The recent work that you did with dynamic bilingualism, multilingualism, and translanguaging. I think first, if you could define translanguaging, because we have a variety of listeners where maybe we have um, novice teachers and then we have well-seasoned teachers. So um, very, very uh, succinctly, if I can, translanguaging is the idea that bilinguals do not have two boxes, two languages psychologically, that yes, there are two languages socially, two languages that are important, right? That are important for my identity, their bilingualism is important for my grandchildren's identity, but 
that when we act as people, what we have is we have a unitary repertoire, a unitary repertoire of features and meanings that we use selectively depending on the audience that we are speaking to, right? So that's the idea. I always say is is think of not two boxes, but think of a string of pearls, right? And that you have this string of pearls that you keep adding pearls to. You know, I always think, you know, language teachers are not teaching a language. They're, they're just adding pearls to this repertoire, right? They're expanding it in some way. And that's what translanguaging is. Translanguaging is thinking of, and it's an ING, uh, because it, it focuses on the actions that, that bilinguals do. And their actions that they do with this repertoire of meanings that, for example, in homes, in bilingual homes and bilingual communities, you don't have to watch because you know, you said you said things without having to watch, right? What you were saying. But in school, you don't say those words, right? You, you don't come up with those because they have restricted us to this, these pearls at this time and these other pearls at this other time. And the cognitive injustice of seeing bilingual children that way is what really motivates me because if you think about it, not only are you not teaching them with all their resources, right? I mean, we always, we're always taught to teach, making sure that we, we are addressing all the students' resources. So not only are we doing that, but when we assess the children, we are assessing the bilingual children with less than half of their repertoire, whereas the monolingual children are assessed with their full repertoire, right? And so that translanguaging as a theory of language is important because it puts the action in the speaker and because of its social and cognitive justice ideas, right? So many things to, to unpack. I want to jump to the, the book that you co-authored, Additive Schooling and Subtractive Times. And I'm wondering if, since the time you worked on this book, you feel that there's been a shift within the classroom setting. I want to tell you, Suzanne, that I really have not followed closely what, hap what has happened to Gregorio Luperón, which was the subject of this book. Right. This book I co-authored with Leslie Bartlett, who was a colleague of mine, an anthropologist at Teachers College. And I learned a lot from Leslie because Leslie does very serious ethnographic work, which meant, you know, observation after observation, visit after visit, and just getting your feet on the ground there. When we were working on Luperon, one of the, one of the, I think one of the titles that always came to our mind was Angela Valenzuela's book on subtractive schooling. We thought, oh, this is such a great example of additive schooling, right? So we knew that that had to be, they were subtractive times and maybe they've, the times have even gotten worse since we, since we wrote the book uh, because it, you know, there, were, there, there have always been tensions between what schools that, are, that work for the community and that was a special school. That was a school that was, uh, that grew out of community pressure 
Asociación Comunal de Dominicanos Progresistas, ACDP. And it was community pressure that got the school. Uh, and I remember when we first started, uh, when they first started, they were in a terrible place, second and third floor of a warehouse. There were no windows. It was just, but the teachers were part of the community. The teachers were smart people. They saw these children not as deficient. They saw these children as, as strong. I remember two Dominican teachers who had been scientists in uh, the Dominican Republic. Uh, one of them had been a doctor, and now they were the science teachers. And they offered, for example, AP classes in uh, biology and chemistry. And that was something that was unheard of in uh, schools where there were a lot of Latino kids. Latino kids did not get AP science courses. They just didn't. But, you know, it's interesting. They were using, you know, translanguaging pedagogical practices before this was became even a word. Because what they were doing, for example, is I remember clearly the biology AP class. The biology AP class followed, the book was in English, but the class was in Spanish, right? So they, the kids read the book in English, more or less, but then the, all the discussion was in Spanish. The, the um, resources that they brought were all in Spanish. And so it was additive in the sense that these kids were not seen as deficient. Nothing was being taken away from them they were adding to their knowledge base, right? It was cognitively rich with a, a principal who was very devoted to the community, who really knew that community, who knew the gangs in the street. Uh, but he kept that school going for many, many years until he retired. I know there's a new principal. I know she's been in touch with me. I know that there were, after we finished the book, There were pressures on the school to have to accept newcomers because they were they they did not want to be seen as a school simply for newcomers. They wanted to be seen as a school for Latino kids with whatever characteristics they had. In, in the beginning, they really didn't accept anybody that had just arrived because they that's not what they were set up for. They were set up to, to educate bilingual kids. And I think that's very important because I think what has happened is that we have we have been pushed into a corner so that bilingualism is seen only as what English language learners have, right? It's it's only then that we pay attention. You know, I always talk about we're looking at the tail of the animal instead of looking at the animal, which is all the bilinguals that there are in the in, in this city, in this country, they keep making sure that our attention is uh, geared towards this little piece uh, of those who are learning English, English language learners. And I think it's uh, it, there's a lot that has to be said about educating bilingual kids. And we just don't see them. They're invisible. They are, once they leave either the ESL, the bilingual program, They're completely invisible. No one talks about the need of bilingual children. And I'm talking about someone who has three children and seven grandchildren. So the need of bilingual children to see themselves in books, to recognize their language practices in books, to even if they're reading in English, to be able to bring all of their experiences into the book. 
And I can tell you that it's very important for all of them, you know, to be proud of who they are. As Dr. Garcia stated, bilingualism is not new in the U.S. And we need to reframe our work so that we compare bilinguals in the United States and their language skills within their own context. It's wrong to compare them with speakers of that same language in a monolingual setting in another country. We must address the cracks in our school systems and work towards educational opportunities where we as policymakers, researchers, teachers, administrators, and boards dismantle practices of cognitive injustice. As we get closer to the end of the academic school year, let's keep in mind the guiding premise Ophelia has used for all of her years she has worked. Build upon the strength of your students. If we build upon the strength of our students, there's nothing that they can't achieve. I hope you will join us for our next episode to hear part two of our interview with Dr. Ophelia Garcia. Until next time, speak your beauty. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm bilingual in America and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback. Follow us, like us, share us.